there's an ad for um, Cadbury's Favourites. I'm sure you've seen it. It's, it's a terrific um, ad that captures so much about what it means to be Australians. There's a couple... Um, in the supermarket and they get invited to someone's house for dinner. They have that conversation we all have, you know, what can we bring? And they say, don't bring a thing. Now, the ad works because culturally we've all agreed collectively to ignore that instruction, haven't we? So um, we go to someone's house for a meal and we make a contribution, something, anything. doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, and so, of course, the guests turn up with a box of chocolates and everyone is happily ever after. There are times, and hospitality, I think, is one of those, when we find it difficult to receive a gift. Now, Australian dinner party etiquette is one thing. Um, Keep bringing gifts for your hosts. It's culturally appropriate. It's nice. It makes us feel good. The major topic, however, in Acts chapter 15 concerns our salvation. By salvation, I mean forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and eternal welcome into his family, okay? And we're going to see that the critical issue in Acts 15, it concerns our salvation, but it hinges on this question. Is salvation a gift I receive, or is it a status that I achieve? That's the terrain of Acts chapter 15. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a closer look at the first part of those verses Craig read. Why don't you join me as I do that? Gracious God, we do give you thanks and praises. We've already heard from your word this morning. You've been good to us in the Lord Jesus. So we pray now for the ministry of your spirit that he'd reveal to us more about who Jesus is, a bigger picture of his plans and purposes for us, and that your spirit would cause us to rejoice in the compassion that he invites us to receive. Father, would you hear our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Inside your uh, news bulletin is a sermon outline, which is roughly where I'm going to be heading this morning. You can see my first heading there, the controversy. Um, At this point, let me give you some background. Um, Christianity has formed around kind of two major centres by this point. You've got Jerusalem, which is a collection of churches mainly consisting of Jews who've become Christians. Okay, And then you've got Antioch, which is a collection of churches made up of people largely who are not Jews who've become Christians. And if you're not a Jew, then you're called a Gentile, okay? That's, when you hear that word, it just means that you're not a Jew. I don't have any Jewish heritage. I'm a Gentile. You probably are too. So you're in Antioch, and verse 1, so people come to visit from Judea. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. So an obvious point to begin with, these people are teachers. That should raise the question for us, what are they teaching? What's their message? Well, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that escalated pretty quickly, didn't it? The presenting issue here, that part of the iceberg we can see above the waterline, the presenting issue has to do with keeping the Jewish law, of which male circumcision was one part. And according to these teachers, you can see as well as me, for Gentile Christians, those Christians who have no Jewish heritage at all, those Christians in Antioch, verse 1, they must keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. Now, as well as other parts of Jewish law, male circumcision was the physical sign that distinguished God's people from everybody else. Now, look, if it was me, I probably would have gone with a different sign. Maybe you would have too. That's beside the point. Jewish law 
Male circumcision are the presenting issue. But the big issue, the big part of the iceberg under the waterline here centres on the question, how can a person be saved? That is, how can I be acceptable to God? How can I be forgiven by him? How can I receive peace with God, restoration, reconciliation? These teachers and those who support them would say, well, the answer to that question is, you Gentiles, you must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, think of this. For the relatively inexperienced Christians in Antioch, most of whom have no Jewish heritage... This teaching would undermine their confidence, don't you think? It might go something like this. The internal kind of conversation in their head. I thought Jesus' sacrifice brought me forgiveness and peace with God. That's what I thought. I thought I was saved, but apparently now I need to keep this Jewish law. And since I don't know the first thing about the Jewish law, well, I guess that means I haven't kept it. And so maybe I'm not saved after all. You see the issue? Is salvation a gift I receive or is it a status that I achieve? I mean, how can I be sure that God accepts me? Because we have two very different answers to that question here. Verse 1, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Compare that to what we heard last week. Remember last week, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching in Pisidian Antioch. This is what he said to them. I want you to know, what does he want them to know? That through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That is, Jesus will make you acceptable to God. But then he adds this. Through him, that is through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin A justification, simply meaning a right relationship with God. You might say peace with God that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So which is it? Salvation, a gift I receive or a status I achieve. One of those options is wrong. We can't paper over the cracks here and pretend to ourselves that this is one of those moments where we just kind of forget that one of these options is wrong and we celebrate diversity. I think I've probably mentioned this to you before. I used to be a parent helper in my kids' maths groups in primary school, which was ideal for me because I was ceiling out at about year three maths. Anyhow, one time Rebecca's teacher took me aside afterwards and she said, I noticed that you told one of the students that their answer was wrong. And it was. Now, I'm not having a go at it. She then said to me, now, look, we're trying to create a positive learning environment here. So next time an answer is wrong... We don't describe it that way. Why don't you say something like, well, it was almost right? (laughs) Now, look, I can get on board with that. I defer to the wisdom of the experts, and I'm happy to kind of support that because, you know, we're dealing with seven-year-olds or whatever it was. Friends, we are thinking adults. And one of these options before us is wrong. And when it comes to something as important as people's eternal well-being. I see nothing clever or sophisticated or even sensitive about pretending that every opinion is equally valid when we know that's not the case. Jesus claims 
I am the way and the truth and the life. You know this, John 14. No one comes to the Father, he says, except through me. Jesus says nothing here about salvation depending on your ability to keep Jewish law. Did he forget? And so we're left with a dilemma. Who's right? Salvation, a gift I receive or a status I achieve? That's the controversy being stirred up here in Antioch. So as we move from controversy to confrontation, well, how is this going to play out? Well, before getting to the detail, if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, so far this has been kind of borderline interesting, um, but not really relevant, can I suggest to you that you reconsider? Because every generation of Christian history, ours included, it has false teachers who, in their own words, will say something of a variation like this, yes, Jesus died for your sins, praise the Lord. Now, to make sure you're really safe, You know, truthfully, it doesn't matter how you finish that sentence. Make a donation, speak in tongues, get baptised, join the choir, whatever. When it comes to your salvation, if you are expected to contribute something, anything, then what are you really saying? Well, you're saying, among other things, that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. Despite what he said, Jesus is not the way to the Father. He's not telling the truth and he cannot offer eternal life. The best he can do is point you towards the Father. The rest is up to you, so good luck with that. So how do we move forward? Well, and we're so indebted to these church leaders. They meet in Jerusalem and after some lengthy, and I'd suggest probably behind the scenes, robust deliberations... Peter gets up and he makes this conclusion. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we Jews are saved just as they are, the Gentiles. He's saying every Christian is saved on the same terms by the same means. Your family connections, your achievements, your morality, they may be really important. But in a conversation about your salvation, they are not relevant criteria. And so to those who insist on making Jewish law compulsory, Peter makes this observation. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles, non-Jews, a yoke that is a burden that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Feel the force of what Peter's saying. Imagine you're a Jew now. What he's saying is, get over yourselves. You guys, you Jews, you've got the law, but you couldn't keep it. What hope have the Gentiles got of keeping that same law when we couldn't do it? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Jews, Gentiles, saved by grace. What does grace mean? Well, look, here's my simple summary. It just means that you don't get treated as your sins deserve. We deserve judgment, but we receive mercy. That's grace. But I reckon it's fair enough to pause here and to recognise 
that there's a lot on the line here for these Jewish Christians. Think of it. What is it? A thousand years, 1500 years, they've been told you are God's treasured possession. You are God's chosen people. And that was right. It's true. But now, as salvation goes global in Jesus' name, Israel's unique role in God's plans and purposes for this world is coming to an end. That's a lot for Jewish Christians to process. And I reckon we ought to cut them some slack. But in recognising this Situation for Jewish Christians, James, he gets up at the end of the confrontation and he proves in the words of the own, their own prophets that saving the nations like this was always God's intention. He quotes from the prophet Amos. After this, I'll return and I'll rebuild David's fallen tents, says the Lord. And that's a promise fulfilled through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the last of the kings in the line of David, the eternal king. He's going to rebuild that fallen tent. Its ruins I'll rebuild, I'll restore it. Why? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Even the prophets agree with what the Lord is doing. And the assembly falls silent. Well, you would. As James confirms what is now obvious to all, that everyone is invited to receive forgiveness in Jesus' name. But this gift of salvation, I've called it consequences because I needed another heading that started with C, if you can see my outline there. But of course, consequences can be positive or negative, can't they? So it kind of fits. Bear with me. What I mean is, having been saved, our lives need to change. There are consequences of our salvation, if I can put it like that. And throughout this passage, we've seen how, for Jewish Christians, they've needed to shift their attitudes towards these non-Jews, these Gentiles who've become Christians. So, verse 8, God, says Peter, who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, that is, the Gentile Christians. How did he show it? Well, by giving them the Holy Spirit. And so if God accepts Gentile Christians as full, legitimate members of his family, how could any Jewish Christian turn around and say, well, we should exclude them or make it difficult for them? Equally, though, having been saved, Gentiles have new responsibilities too. And so the church leaders send a letter to the churches in Antioch made up largely of non-Jewish Christians, people with non-Jewish heritage. Follow with me from verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, church leaders, not to burden you, Gentiles, with anything beyond the following requirements, yet to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. To be clear, James is not giving these Gentiles a new set of requirements to fulfil in order to be saved. No, he's writing to people who are already saved and this list of requirements, it sounds odd to us probably because we don't have Jewish heritage, but to the Jewish Christian with their deeply ingrained ceremonial and moral traditions, 
Jewish Christians would have found these behaviours that James lists deeply offensive. And so, in gratitude to God for their salvation and as a demonstration of brotherly and sisterly love in Christ, James calls on the Gentiles, avoid these things so that you don't unnecessarily aggravate your Jewish brothers and sisters. Our salvation has consequences for how we treat one another. And that's what James is getting at. Now, as I draw these threads together, it's possible that you're thinking, you know, this whole sermon, it's not told me anything I don't already know. I know salvation comes through Jesus, his death that pays for sin, his resurrection that guarantees my eternal life. I know that. And perhaps you know it so well, you've forgotten to rejoice. But if all this is so obvious... Maybe you can help me understand why Christian history is littered with examples where people forget this. If it's so obvious that salvation comes only through Jesus, why still today is the church burdened by false teachers who want to say, sure, Jesus died for you, but now what you've got to do is this. Why was it 500 years ago in the Reformation that the church persecuted its own? Burning people at the stake for upholding what? What did they uphold? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a debt we owe them. Now, our Christian history tells me, and Acts 15 confirms it, the obvious things we believe, those things that go without saying, need to be said. Again and again and again. Our salvation is a gift to be received, not a status to be achieved. And look, I reckon this is especially true since our hearts are so easily led astray by pride. Or maybe I should speak for myself. It's a politeness because I think this is true of all of us. But it's as if, and we wouldn't put it like this, but this is the effect of it. It's as if we could front up to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, thanks for your sacrifice. Now, let's talk some more about what I bring to the table. Look at what I've done. You know, last week I gave you the challenge if you were here. Uh, It's Monday morning. What would you say? You're lining up for coffee and a colleague asks you, listen, why do you take Jesus seriously? That was last week's challenge. Okay. Now it's Tuesday morning. Your colleague has carefully considered what you've had to say. Your three-point answer as to why they should take Jesus seriously. And now they have a follow-up question. It's a little more pointed than Monday's question. It goes a little bit like this. What makes you so confident? By which they mean arrogant, but because you've offered to buy their coffee, you're being polite, and so are they. What makes you so confident that you're good enough Jesus. What would you say? What would you say? And you're going to have your own words to answer that question. I'm not going to presume to tell you what to say, but I reckon it might be worth shaping your response around Peter's insight. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. There's our boast, if you want to boast. We boast in him 
He is, as the saying goes, our saving grace. He's our risen king who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Our crucified king. The ransom for many. That we might become the children of God. There's our boast. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. It's the only grace that saves. And it's the gift that we're invited to receive. And it's the gift that ought to change us and shape us and fill our hearts with thanksgiving as we wait for our Saviour to return and we meet him face to face. Let me pray. Oh, dear God, we do give you thanks for those servants who've gone before us who stood up for the truth and who shaped our understanding by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We would see Jesus as our King and our Saviour, our means of grace and peace. And so we do pray, take us and use us that our lives would bring him honour and glory and refresh our joy at these old truths. We ask that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.